I'm Peter High, President of MetaStrategy, book author, Forbes columnist, and your host. I'm excited to share this conversation with Steve Randish, the Chief Information Officer of FINRA, a non-governmental organization that regulates member brokerage firms and exchange markets. Steve graciously shared his thoughts on a variety of topics featured in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. The book's available for pre-order now on Amazon or through gettingtonimble.com. In this interview, we dive into several of the book's themes, including process, technology, and ecosystems. Steve discusses some of the sweeping changes he's made across his career, such as how he's inverted FINRA's entire IT organization to be platform-oriented. Steve also shares best practices related to cloud computing based on his early and broad adoption of that technology, his perspective on IT's role in driving value, and a variety of other topics. Stick around after the interview to hear more about the five themes of Getting to Nimble or visit gettingtonimble.com to learn more. Thank you. This interview began with Steve sharing his thoughts on what makes an effective IT organization. So I think um, for me, a big part of this is, and I think we've talked about this, but I think effective modern IT is IT that leads the business through transformation. So, you know, a lot of the existing thinking is that IT should not lead the business, that it should, that that's dangerous and that IT should be given their working orders from the business because um, IT that gets ahead of the business leads the business is IT goes awry and delivers things that don't make sense or don't get implemented. I think, I think there's a lot of history supporting that um, today, yesterday, 20 years ago. Effective IT should be able to lead the business and propose innovations and transformation ideas that through technology that maybe the business isn't um, capable of, of doing. Hmm. My approach has always been to take an IT organization and transform it into an organization that is most capable, potentially the strongest department in the organization relative to the business departments, you know, with talent and innovation and idea generation to basically just take risks in stick our neck out there and be transformative. And so I think, you know, to your point, mm -hmm. that's how you become relevant. If I think about my years at NASDAQ, when I went into NASDAQ in 2000, it was a has-been. It was literally three or four years away from becoming obsolete because of electronic communication networks that were far more nimble, less cost-effective, faster, more performant and um you know wh while we did acquire two of them which helped we also built a modern low latency trading system at the same you know coincidental to that and so in essence got rid of our legacy platforms and transformed to be more like you know the modern stock exchange um and that was done you know by being aggressive leading you know you know not waiting to be told what to do by the business and basically um running ahead of the organization 
And so I think um, certainly at FINRA that has been, I mean, it was going to the cloud and completely transforming our systems to be kind of ubiquitous, uh, running in a location agnostic, completely elastic environment has been, um, you know, I, I think you could argue that at least for our market surveillance, we'd be dead in the water right now had we not done that. I mean, our volume has gone from 30 billion market events a day to 500. Um, in the time that we've done that, that's almost a 20-fold um, increase in our capacity. You know, we went from 3,000 total logical OSs in our data center to 110,000 in the cloud. Um, so I guess, Peter, my point is that aggressive IT, IT that doesn't wait to be told what to do, IT that pushes the boundaries and proposes ideas, proposes innovation, proposes and leads transformation is the way to go. And, and, and I think I've told you that, you know, when I look for jobs and consider opportunities, one of my key factors is where is IT in the organization? Is it viewed as a cost center, you know, layered down under the CFO or CAO, or is it directly reporting to the CEO with a seat at the table of the executive or management committee? Yeah. And that's the way it's been for most of my CIO career. You know, the exception would be City, which right. is understandable because it's yeah. just a monster organization. But for the other three, that's absolutely been the case. And I think if you look at the history of those three organizations, they all had major IT-driven trans business transformations uh, during my tenure. And how much, so what's interesting, um, Steve, is at this point, you have the experience and the credibility, not to mention, I, I would imagine the confidence just personally uh, to undertake this. Um, and I can only imagine that for each of these organizations, well, you'll help me with this, but there were different differing levels of understanding the changes that needed to be made. Obviously, it's an ideal situation if like, you know, everyone else already is kind of sold on the change and you can just get to work. You don't have to go through the, you know, <laughs> the um, the time to go through the explanations and the weeks or months just to get going because you need the buy-in of the rest of the team. And so I imagine there are different different teams took longer to get to where you needed them to be. Um, because I mean, I, I would imagine many of them weren't used to being IT led in a way that you've described. And so I'd be, I, I maybe with an eye, if you don't mind my suggesting it, Steve, within, within, uh, the objective of like the counseling of CIOs who would wish to operate as you do, but either find themselves currently in a situation or are about to join a, a new situation where they need to make the case. How do you make the case? How do you make that change happen? Yeah, I think in each case, um, it was a little bit different and probably helped by some luck. So um, not to go back to ancient history, but, <laughs> you know, it is in my DNA. But like the, my Chicago Stock Exchange experience was interesting because when I started there in 1996, um, it was not a very 
compelling business. It was, I think, moving along at like 3% stock trading market share, which is insignificant. Mm -hmm. And um, then something happened. And what happened was the World Wide Web and the emergence of Schwab and E-Trade coming they and they these are brokers that have been around since the 60s but the world wide web afforded them the opportunity to reach investors directly with low cost you know twenty dollar fifteen dollar trading and so in that period of time retail investor trading took off and so in the i was only there four years but the four years i was there volume went up 30 fold wow. and our market share um became significant um over 10 percent and it was because those brokers e-trade waterhouse schwab and 30 others that are maybe less well known but were formative in, in, in that period and now um could not afford to send their retail order flow to nasdaq in new york it was just not competitive pricing it was wholesale um business to business economics they were too slow on their feet to move towards direct retail pricing and so um exchanges like chicago stock exchange bernie madoff um, and three or four others filled that void so the, the point here is that um here here i am in summer of 1997 and it's like holy crap we've got this major opportunity to grab you know it's 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 nasdaq and new york aren't going to get it they're years away from changing their model acknowledging that this is a market um uh, going to their members and getting agreement to go after this market because it was viewed as as um a problem because you know the the members of new york and and nasdaq are brokerage firms that don't want to be disintermediated we're kind of looking at this and saying we have this opportunity to go after this and we did so we basically i focused in my years there on making sure that the systems would stay up and that they could handle massive amounts of volume relative to what we've historically been able to handle and that sounds kind of simple and in retrospect maybe it was but um somebody else may have missed that um mm -hmm. we didn't right. and so it was totally an it driven um you know obviously working with our marketing and sales people but it was like sales and marketing and the cio completely driving that strategy so to your point about how do you how do you get there i don't think there was much resistance because i think every you know all the traders on the floor everybody benefited from having that order flow coming into our exchange yeah and so i don't think there was much question about it, it was you know I, I was lucky i went i went there at the right time I mean, who, who would have known if it would have been five years earlier or five years later because the business model changed again in the 2000s with um, stock price decimalization which eliminated a lot of the um the spread which 
the economics of stock trading completely changed after the after 2001 and the Chicago Stock Exchange Madoff model imploded. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I kind of like walked in at the exact right time. Four years earlier would have been too early. Four years later would have been too late. And it was an obvious thing that everybody knew that it had to, um, you know, we, we had to rise to the challenge and support the level of um, trading volume that fell into our lap. Just magic. Yeah. Then at NASDAQ, different story. Um, so at NASDAQ, I kind of went, went to NASDAQ knowing about the problems they had. So, so, so when I was at Chicago Stock Exchange, we were eating NASDAQ's lunch. And they, were, they acknowledged that. Gregor Baylor hired me, I think, or at least I got on his radar because I was complaining to him and his CTO, John Hickey, about their technology problem because traders on the Chicago Stock Exchange floor uh, would be trading NASDAQ stocks electronically and then they would develop long and short positions themselves with their own capital based on executions they were granting you know, retail investors, customers of Schwab and trade. So, so, for example, they could be, um, you know, a million shares long in Microsoft or IBM at two in the afternoon. And so then they would go to NASDAQ and stock market national rules allowed this. NASDAQ would have to buy or sell those million shares um, from the Chicago Stock Exchange broker or trader. Uh, They're called layoffs. And so that process wasn't working and um it was causing our traders to have a lot of financial risk and so i would complain i would complain to gregor and john about that and i would complain to them about the fact that when the market would open every morning their systems couldn't keep up because of all of the accumulated order flow coming in from the night before the morning and there would be queuing at the open, you know, for 10, 20, 30 minutes at times, three, four times a week. So when um, Gregor was looking to replace John, his CTO, who was retiring, I got on the list. And when I went in, in the interviews, it was like, well, I know what the problems are. I know exactly which systems aren't working and um, kind of articulated a, a plan that kind of won them over. And so I started. And so the first year was basically fixing issues that were um, operational in nature. But while I was doing that, I was also figuring out that, you know, there's an opportunity here to modernize this place, to get rid of the legacy platforms. They had Tandem, they had Unisys, Mainframe, Stratus, you name it, all of the kind of 1970s, 80s, and 90s proprietary platforms that you would use if you wanted high levels of performance and reliability. But that level of reliability and performance wasn't keeping up with stock trading in the 2000s, where you required 20 milliseconds of latency and not five nines of uptime. So 
um, you know, so when I was going through the process of figuring out how to fix the operational issues, I was also learning that some of these issues are not going to be fixed to perfection with these legacy platforms. And so I came up with a roadmap to modernize the network and the platforms in the data center and was generally not given the, the, the money the, and the um, kind of um, multi-year patience, if you would, to actually implement them, which, which required write-offs on the balance sheet and you know, some accounting things that companies generally will only be able to entertain when they're in a transformation, in distress, where investors and analysts are going to give them the benefit of the doubt to kind of get through a turbulent period where they're going to have write-downs and asset losses to kind of get rid of all that old stuff and rewrite it with modern technology. So when, um, when Greifeld came in two and a half years after I started, we went to dinner um, his fourth As the CEO of, of NASDAQ at that time? CEO, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I showed him the roadmap. I said, here, I've got a plan. It's going to take three years. I'm going to have to, you know, you're going to have to give me the liberty to do some nasty stuff on the balance sheet in terms of write-downs of, of assets. Um, but there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's, it's a good one. Um, and so he basically... In that dinner meeting, you know, my recollection of that dinner over and over and over and over and over kind of reinforces how right I was. I probably wasn't as right and wasn't as confident as I am in retrospect. But the net, the net of it is he said, go do it. And he, and he let me do it. Didn't bother me for three years. And uh, technology essentially drove that transformation, coincident with an IPO. And the stock went from $6 to 46 in those um, two and a half years. Wow. Uh, completely a technology transformation. Um, wasn't really led at all by the business. It was, in fact, not much happened in the business during that period. Um, it was, you know, I, I, he was the one that would take me on the um, analyst. Uh, yeah. 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 And it was like, you know, we, we couldn't divulge insider information, but I kind of learned during that period what you can and can't say to analysts. Um, hint, hint. But, you know, we got a plan. It looks good. <laughs> We're going to get rid of this stuff. We can't give you the numbers exactly. And, but, you know, they, they got it. And then they started supporting us and rating us as a buy. Mm-hmm. And um, so a very different story there. That was a growth one. Or, uh, Chicago was growth. NASDAQ was cost takeout, getting rid of legacy systems and debt. Um, and then FINRA, you could argue that it's growth because of the volume increase. Yeah. Um, but it's not really a revenue-driven growth right. model like Chicago. It's more of a, we had to do it in order to survive. Um, I mean, even the most positive person would say that we wouldn't be 
it wouldn't be the same today had we not done this because of the the shift in the volume and in, in the um, markets um yeah. but i think you know we're at nasdaq you know when i was working for their first ceo the one that hired me which would have been gregor's boss right there was a skepticism about investing in multi-year initiatives and, and particularly going after um, write downs and balance sheet transactions and so it really required a turnaround person in greifeld to come in and say i'm in my honeymoon i can you know do some disaster to our balance sheet for the first two and a half years if i can prove that in the end three years from now this is going to be a healthy company from a financial standpoint yeah uh, that was luck um yeah. <laughs> it, it may not have happened and they could have hired somebody that wouldn't have done that right right, right. exactly By the time I, I would say i got to finra i had enough track record that um at that point in my career I could say, okay, we're going to go to the cloud. We need to go to the cloud. It's going to save us money, give us flexibility, demand elasticity. And it was like, people looked at me and said, okay, we don't understand what you're talking about exactly, but we trust you. Mm -hmm. So very different stories. Um, not really, a, um, I think, a common theme other than IT cred. Yeah. Yeah, that's clearly the, the, the extent to which IT led in each of these cases. And I mean, it's mi almost mind boggling to think about it doing so in a time like 96 or 97, when I mean, the, the vast majority of IT departments were support organizations and little understood right. by the, the businesses that they were a part of, um, you know, which is why they were reporting to CFOs typically. And, you know, the, the less the CEO knew about it, the better, <laughs> perhaps, some, you know. So, I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable that at that early age, you know, you were able to, you know, due to the circumstance, but also due to your own, you know, insights, uh, um, develop that credibility. And actually, one thing that comes through, Steve, I've, I've thought about this in past conversations between us, but you're certainly underscoring this, is you also, and I have to imagine that from among other places, your time at uh, University of Chicago Business School, where I, if I recall correctly, you studied finance. Um, you've got an unusual financial acumen for an IT leader. And as finance, especially in the financial services industry, I mean, I would argue actually in any industry it should be, but in the financial services industry, especially where finance is the language, is the essence of the business where you can, I mean, even talking about balance sheet write downs, there are a lot of CIOs today who wouldn't necessarily understand the mechanics of what you're describing. And uh you know having the credibility to walk through the financial implications of what you're talking about the the kind of good news in the medium and long term it, despite some of what might appear to be bad news or difficult more you know kind of difficulty for the short term you know that, that that's an unusual skill set to be able to talk about the technical aspects but to paint it in uh because i have to imagine at least some of these ceos were not technologists weren't as savvy as you are didn't know about as much about technology as you knew about finance and so you're able to kind of bridge that gap on a topic that's still probably esoteric to some extent i mean you, you mentioned it just right there with regard to finra we don't understand what you're talking about but we know you've done this before and you've earned that credibility to 
take us down a path that otherwise would seem pretty risky. Totally fair. Um, yeah. So yeah, 19, yeah. In the nineties, uh, that was, um, ancient history relative to where we're at today. Exactly. And, and I don't know if I ever told you this story and, but you know, so Nat, Gregor and Rick Ketchum, the CEO hired me away from Chicago. Yep. Um, I think, you know, the recruiter was very much skeptical of my ability to get the job and kind of when I went to New York to meet her, she was like giving me the sense, you know, you, they asked for you. I didn't ask for you. And, <laughs> what an amazing thing to do. To, to, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so I had a 20 minute interview up in Trumbull with John Hickey, who I was replacing, who was the CTO reporting to Baylor. And, you know, 20 minutes into the, and he basically asked me questions about their problems. And I'm like, okay, well, let me tell you. I, I, I was just very articulate in saying, I understand the problem and here's what I would do and blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay, you got it. Yeah. I knew coming out of that interview, 20 minutes into it, that unless something really dramatically negative happened somewhere else, I was, I was going to get the job. And, um, so when I, when I resigned from Chicago Stock Exchange, they offered me the CEO job to stay. Wow. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Gosh. And so I, I contemplated it for a weekend. And um, so I started talking to some of the people that were my peers, like the chief legal officer, the chief uh, sales and marketing guy. Like I'm contemplating staying and I would be come the CEO, you know, because the, the trading floor firms were the ones pitching it, not the um, board or the executives. It was weird. It was coming from the trading floor who technically own the exchange or the members. They, they're the ones that have the equity. And um, when I was talking to the, um, my, my peers who would then become my subordinates, they're like, well, well we're, basically they said they would leave. Um, you know, so it's basically, you know, kind of viewing IT maybe not as their superior in, in reality. Mm -hmm. And so the calculus I made, well, I'm going to have to completely rebuild this management team. That's going to be a lot of work. And that was kind of the reason that ultimately said, I'm, I'm out of here um, because this place is going to implode with that decision. And so then I made it difficult, you know, because the reason I wouldn't have wanted to do it is personally pulling my kids out of out of school and moving them to the East Coast. Yeah, a lot of pressure against that, right? Of course, yeah. Times were five and three, um, but yeah. So the I guess the point there is, you know, we're talking two thousand twenty years ago. Um, promoting a CIO to a CEO. I mean, it's common now, I guess, for yeah, some. I, I wouldn't something. say common, but yeah, it's certainly happening to some extent. But you're right, that that is really like a remarkable, that was absolutely not at all common back then. Unheard yeah, that, of, in fact. That, that's the point. You know, you've talked about the, uh, the, the cloud migration, of course. And this is the iteration that's been the kind of deepest one. What you've done with FINRA has been the, I assume anyway, uh, deeper than your past experiences. I mean, in some of those past experiences, it wasn't relevant, but in sending compute to the cloud um, and 
making that an enormous priority and so on. Um, you, you know, I've talked, of course, about the the steps of that uh, in some what at the end actually appeared to be some very conservative. You, you, you thought you were kind of you know, setting up kind of the the best case scenario kind of view of this. And it turned out that it wasn't even the best case scenario in terms of what this would look like. Um, and, that, and now, of course, the advantages that you're reaping from this during times of, you know, times of uncertainty. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, I'd, be, I'd be interested, Steve, in asking a little, finding out a little bit about the, um, as you go through those technical changes, what are, you know, what are some of the process, as you think about process modernization, what are some of the things that, that come to mind that, you know, especially in recent years you've been working on? Uh, to change things, to modernize the organization? The biggest thing, and I think many organizations get this, you know, when in the circle talking to my peers, is that particularly with Amazon, their whole ideology around software and technology is automation of the software process. You know, build, test, deploy, DevOps. Yeah. Um, I obviously had an advantage in that when I went into FINRA in 2013, they had a very mature DevOps process. Um, and so we had a, a step up in that regard. And, and you know, when I tell the, uh, the cloud story, a, a lot of people, I, th I would say most people nowadays understand that you have to have mature DevOps in order to properly navigate the transformation because um, to take advantage of it, to take advantage of cloud computing, particularly the Amazon brand of it, you have to have um, kind of automation in your veins. Um, and so we, we were at least in a good position to jump into that because we understood it and we had made a lot of progress on it in our data center processes in internal on-prem. Um, but I would say that in that time, in the last seven years, the amount of focus and further progress and maturation of our DevOps automation has been um, material. Um, you know, I don't know, three times, four times, 10 times, whatever, pick the number, but it's, Something that we we we, we kind of learned that in order to do at least Amazon Web Services cloud computing properly, to use their services the way they were designed, you have to you have to take the human element out of your software um, processes, and you know everything from patching, deployments, testing, end to end, and I think that's something that. You know, my uh, my key leadership, key leaders have recognized, embraced, and it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental part of the transformation. And, and you know, people might look at it and say, "Oh, yeah, that's obvious," and "Yeah, that makes sense," but then they don't have the know-how and the wherewithal to actually make it happen, uh, which is a lot of discipline. It, it it, it requires to do to build a lot of capabilities that initially require investment but don't have any real business value associated with them kind of like internal stuff like yeah 
IT oriented investments that don't have any, that they don't change the business. Um, now you look back on it and say, well, you know, we, we just had a, uh, we do an independent assessment every year of our, of our cyber because our board is very concerned about it. So in fact, we did two so far this year. We had Verizon and a firm called NCC come in and do independent assessments. And I just got the draft report yesterday from Verizon and mm -hmm. on the and the NIST and I uh, ST framework. Yes, they rated us four point six out of five, which is um, ninety plus percentile relative to other organizations, which um, is really good. And yeah. part of that is our automation. The fact that we've got our software development build test deploy automated so that if patches come out security patches we can just do them tonight because we've got that whole process uh automated and so now i would i would argue that there are true business value associated with all of this kind of internal process improvement because if we you know if, if that report came back as a three or a two yeah, uh, um, that would be a very different scenario for us. Yes, exactly. So I think that's the big one is, um, you know, when I talk to people about the cloud journey, they nod their head and they get the DevOps thing, but they don't because it, it has to be a crusade, um, an internal crusade towards completely changing the way you look at your IT process. Um, and it's easier said than done, I guess. Yeah. Easier yeah. Said than done. That makes sense. That makes sense. In terms of like microservices and APIs, I mean, I'd be interested in kind of your perspective on the, you know, the, the sanctity of, um, thinking about, thinking about topics like those, um, and incorporating that into the way in which you operate as well. I mean, yeah, we're, uh, we were all about. Uh, and continue to be all about microservices, but we don't really use that term. That's a dated term. Frankly, I, I haven't used it in the workplace in probably a half decade. Okay. But the concept survives. Yeah. Um, is there a replacement for it? Not exactly. Maybe because we just take it for granted. But I think I told you, you know, when I came to FINRA, it was a traditional IT organization organizationally. So you had a thin center architect that really wasn't performing very well didn't have influence what you did have is you had pools of developers supporting individual siloed businesses and my first couple of years was very frustrating because yeah well i got the cloud thing going that was in a silo that was one major business market regulation surveillance but the other businesses, while I was doing that transformation for market surveillance, were kind of going about their way day to day, operating the way they were before I got there. Um, and so when I kind of came up for air after we were just completing the transformation of one business to the cloud, the other businesses were kind of saying, well, Randish is focused over there. Um, you know, a, a criticism, if, if business would want to step out and criticize me which all it people do get criticized yep would be 
you're 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 paying all all your attention over there they're getting all the goodies they're getting all the talent they're getting all the transformation what about us and i was sensitive to that because they were getting their it with their dedicated department just like they were before and they were give or take reasonably satisfied with that but the relativity was becoming a matter because they saw a major transformation happening in somebody else's backyard so I had determined in observing those departments and their IT interaction as being dysfunctional because they were building similar things independently. And so in 2015, I, inver re I inverted the whole IT organization to be platform oriented. So I took the developers out of those dedicated pools for the most part left shadow organizations, small dedicated organizations, but a very, very heavy center that was platform oriented. So building enterprise platforms so that we could build things that all of FINRA departments could use, data platforms, case management platforms, investigation platforms, you name it, all the common things that FINRA does end to end. And we're doing that today and it's very successful. And so that basically allowed us to build platforms of common services that different businesses could make use of. So to use a traditional term, our product managers or business analysts, system analysts would now go from department, department, department to figure out how those common enterprise platforms and services could work for, for a broader certainly than traditional uh, audience, but a broader set of users than um, w was customary. And, you know, the first, I guess, year or two of that was a little bit problematic because anybody in my seat that goes through that transformation has to kind of answer to the business that says, wait a minute, you took three quarters of my de dedicated developers away and now they're off doing this enterprise stuff, what am I getting out of it? But we've gotten through that to the point where it's, it's working. So common enterprise platforms that take business functions that historically may have looked independent and appropriate in a silo, common. So that's one element of it. So the IT organization change, common services, and then now the focus over the last year, year and a half has been to now take that outside of FINRA and offering pretty much everything that our external clients would be generally compliance people within broker dealers and banks who use our systems, access them over the web um, to be API driven. So that's a common look and feel. You come to FINRA through one door and any department or function that you want to use, it's, it's, the same, it's the same stuff. Um, and we're in the middle of that. We've got two major multi-year initiatives, the digital experience transformation and registration uh, system transformation, DXT and RST are the internal acronyms for those, which are um, very high profile external initiatives that 
um, you know, if, if, if you went on, on our external websites, you would see uh, a lot of literature on them. We're doing continuous, you know, feedback demos with firms to get feedback uh, to basically transform the way FINRA looks externally to our client base. Hmm. And it's based on APIs, common services, um, one FINRA is a word that we use often, and just kind of taking the siloed departmental historical aspect of FINRA, which would ultimately, you know, be reflected in our technology experience and ridding ourselves of it. Got it. And, you know, and it's funny because this, this DXT initiative, the digital experience transformation, uh, I worked on the business case through 2018, had a, um, a steering committee of member firms, brokers of small, medium, large firms, about 20 participants working through 2018, coming up with the concept, took it to our board in December of 2018. And it's funny because my peers within, within FINRA were like, oh, that's not going to get approved. This is like really aggressive and there's no internal ROI. True. It's all about the ROI for the users in the, in the brokerage room. And so I presented it in, um, well, two points. So we used our, our um, chief economist and he put his team on it and they did surveys of firms, 100 question surveys that went to 80 firms, small, medium, and large, saying if, we, if FINRA does X, Y, and Z, these things that were in my, our proposal to transform our digital experience, how much time, essentially 100 questions, how much time will it save your compliance people in terms of uh, labor? And the number came back, it was astonishing. It was industry-wide extrapolated using you know phd statistics statisticians 400 million dollars a year savings to the industry wow um, so that's like you know four billion in 10 years to the financial service industry so i you know my peers were like oh this is no internal roi so i i'm usually pretty confident with these things when i go to the board um, but because of my peers not really being on board with it, I was a little bit shaking. So I, it goes to the board and I do the presentation and, you know, we've got external and we got public and industry governors on our board. It was done. And wow. uh, so it's, it's a huge, huge initiative with a lot of support from the street, the firms, and, you know, it's about one FINRA API, common services. Let's rid ourselves of this departmental external look and feel. This has really been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time and walking me through some of these really important points and some of the themes even from across your, your experiences. Thanks, Peter. This interview featured insights that you'll find in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. In an era of unprecedented technology progress and disruption, it's imperative that companies transform themselves to keep up with their digitally native competitors. 
In Getting to Nimble, I explore how companies, including Capital One, FedEx, CarMax, Domino's Pizza, The Washington Post, Walmart, and others have modernized their practices related to people, processes, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. And I provide a framework for companies looking to do the same. To learn more, visit gettingtonimble.com.